Good morning, everybody. It's Jeff Goldberg for the Sales Pro Network. It is June 9th, Friday at 10 a.m. here on the East Coast of the United States. I am a sales coach and trainer, and I work with both individuals and organizations to help them get measurable and sustainable sales increases. And I founded the Sales Pro Network to elevate the profession of sales and to create a place where salespeople can come and hang out, network with each other, learn from each other, ask questions, get advice and coaching from fantastic people like today's guest. And as you know, if you've been with us before, every Friday at 10 a.m., we do a live interview with somebody who can add value to the profession of sales. And once again, my friends, I've come through for you. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Jeff Bajorek. Jeff, I'm going to read this because it's so impressive. Jeff <laughs> helps people to, oh, by the way, before I say this, uh, if you're watching us live, please do say hello in the comments. If you're watching us live on Facebook and have not connected your account to StreamYard, it's just going to say Facebook users, so please put your name in. If you have any questions for our guest, Jeff, today, uh, please put those in the comments and we'll get those taken care of. And finally, if you're watching us on the replay, please put replay in the comments. So back to Jeff Bajorek. He helps people to rethink the way they sell. He is a sales trainer, advisor, and a coach for B2B sales leaders. And he's the president of Parabola Consulting. And I don't usually use do this, but uh, I was so impressed with this quote from one of his clients. Uh, a director of business applications at Microsoft said, Jeff exhibits a masterful level of understanding of all things sales. He has an uncanny ability to simplify the complex and clarify the opaque. When pen, while pendulum swings and sales become the norm, Jeff is a consistent voice of reason. So it's my pleasure to introduce you to the consistent voice of reason, Jeff Bajorek. Good morning, Jeff. <laughs> um, wow, Jeff, that, thank you for uh, that introduction. I want to thank my friend Dewan uh, for saying those things about me. I've worked with Dewan in a bunch of capacities, and he's been a good friend, a trusted advisor to me, and uh, someone that inspires me in the space as well, because um, he's just, he's so wise. Um, uh, and I, I mean, I don't know how he gets away with saying things like that about me, but uh, <laughs> happy to happy to be here today. Thanks for having me. And uh, I want to say hi to Bruce and to Mitch so far in the chat who have said hello. I, um, I love the live streams because there is the live interaction. I have a podcast. You can go listen to that if you want to just hear me think. But if you want to interact, like fire away. I mean, this is an open conversation among uh, really bright minds in sales. And uh, there's no reason to waste the opportunity. Uh, sit and listen if you want. But if you're here live, you gave us your time. What do you want to hear? What do you want to hear us talk about? Um, I know Jeff and I have plenty to talk about, uh, but uh, you know, if, if there's something specific you want to hear us riff on, then then let's do that. Absolutely. Good morning, Bruce. It's always good to see you, Bruce Caseman and Mitch Tobel, my my favorite marketing guy. Good morning, Mitch. Um, I do have plenty of questions for you because I did do some research on you. So uh, if nobody else has them, I'm going to riff, and uh, until uh, until somebody else comes up with them, I'm just going to shoot. So let's start out with this. Um, you say that salespeople and teams don't fail because they're not selling well, which I found interesting. It's because they're not selling. Please explain. Right. Um, do the work. Do the work. It's how often, I'm trying to think of the right way to frame this, because I was just I was talking to two of my clients this morning, separate companies, separate salespeople. They've both been doing this a long time. They're pretty good at what they do. They have the skills. They're not using them. And in this case, the overlap was I'm reviewing these sales calls. I'm hearing them talk about deals. I'm kind of looking through the CRM just to see kind of what they're, wh where these deals are at. I'm, I'm uh, you know, an, an acting interim sales director in, in a couple of these companies. Um, when a while I help to get them kind of up and running and then I'll eventually help them hire my replacement. And what I see that is absolutely epidemic in the sales industry is, yeah, well, We'll talk again in a couple of weeks. 
or we'll talk again next week, or let me review this and and we'll call you. We'll we'll be in touch soon. It's like, no, set the appointment. Set the appointment right now. You don't have a defined next step. And then you're going to call them in a week or 10 days or two weeks or whenever you remember, because that's another problem. And you're going to wonder why you're having such a hard time getting a hold of them. When while you had them, a bird in the hand, as they say, while you had them, you did not schedule their time. And the way that I like to think about it is, look, your prospect is open and in front of you. Your schedule should be too. So, Jeff, you know, when we talked, you we talked actually several months ago about this, this, uh, you know, this live stream, you know, event here. And you said, hey, I'd like to do this. Is there a fit? Can we talk? And we said, yeah. So we set a time right then and there to have the conversation about whether we wanted to explore it further. And so after that conversation, you said, okay, I'd like to have you on. And even though you were booking months in advance, because you get so many great guests, and my friend Todd Capone heard that you know I was doing this, and he sent me a text. He's like, "Oh, you're gonna have so much fun." And I said, "Yeah, I scheduled this months ago." He's like, "Yeah, I'm already on the schedule for like November. I mean, we're recording this June 9th, right? I mean, so like you've got this stuff ahead of time. It's really easy for a salesperson to say, "Oh, it's." I don't want to tell you how long it's going to actually be. I don't want to be pushy. I don't want to, you know, feel like you're, you know, being told what to do. So um, I'll, I'll just call you soon. Well, what the hell does soon mean? And so what, what happens is you don't schedule these next steps. When you had them in front of you, you could have gotten something on the calendar with them for next week or however long it's going to take you to review the documents that they sent you. Sidebar. It's probably going to take you 10 minutes to review that document and decide that you can move forward with them. But you're going to say, I'll oh, give me a week to look at this, right? You got what you need. You're ready to move forward, but you didn't schedule the next step. So you wait a week to call them and then it takes you another 10 days to set up the meeting. Now your sales process has just been extended artificially by 10 to 14 days. Why do you do that to yourself? And so it's like, it's not that you don't know what, you're, what you need to do. It's not that you aren't already pretty good at doing it. It's that you're preventing yourself from executing the next steps in the sales process. And, and that's what I mean when people aren't selling. They're, they're not actually doing it. People know how to pick up the phone and dial. They don't dial. They know how to send the emails. They don't send the emails or they ask AI to send the emails or they schedule something and automate it so that they don't have to actually get involved in the process. Almost every major problem we have in the sales profession today is from people who just don't want to sit down and do the work. And if you do the blocking and tackling of selling, it's amazing how much better your results are. Yeah, I'm with you a million percent. It, it always boils down to the fundamentals as far as I'm concerned. And I could not be happier. I, I don't know if you saw me smiling, that the big smile of recognition. But uh, what you just said is what I consider the most important thing I teach salespeople. Of all the things that you and I you know, expound uh, and share with people, the always setting the next appointment, I call it the BNAS, the best next action step while you're there, is the guaranteed moneymaker to shorten your sales cycle and make sure that you're working with interested people because most salespeople end a meeting like you said okay i'm going to go back and i'll write a proposal i'll give you a call we'll set up another appointment i'll come back and show it to you but it's not easy to get through to people even people who want to do business with you because they're busy doing other stuff by setting the next step while you're there you're shortening your sales cycle and making sure that you're not wasting your time i love that one but i, I, mean, I forgot that it was todd caponi who i found you through i gotta tell you first of all i love todd we worked together a million years ago at, at the same organization he owned a franchise and 
Uh, I've said this to his face, so I'm not saying anything behind his back. <laughs> I had no idea how brilliant he was back then. You know, his book, right. uh, The Transparency Sale, and now The Transparent Sales Leader. I read those books and went, who wrote these books? It can't be my friend Todd. He he's he really gets it, man. He he's oh. he's, he's just terrific. And yes, he's coming back. I think in November with another guy we worked with there, uh, an amazing sales trainer and good friend of mine, Steve Bookbinder. We actually have a question for you. Uh, we said you you help people rethink the way they sell. And Mitch says, why rethink? Well, because I think there are a lot of superstitions out there that need to be challenged. I think there are a lot of things that are taken for granted. Uh, that don't need to be taken for granted. And I think you, you know, we get into these heuristics. Todd would be really proud of me for using that word heuristics, right? But we get into these patterns. We get into these just kind of rote memory routines, right? And routines turn into ruts, turn into canyons if we're not careful. And before long, we have blinders on and if the opportunity isn't put right in front of us and we don't know what to do with it, right? So when you take a step back, when you think instead about what you're trying to accomplish instead of the way you've always done it, what happens? You're open to new possibilities. You're open to creativity. You can be flexible when things like, I don't know, a pandemic come and disrupt the way that everybody did things for so long. You know, it's it's funny. I, and I, I was very vocal about this during the, the height of lockdowns and, and things like that. People are saying, oh, I can't sell now. I can't sell virtually. I can't sell if I'm not in front of my customers physically. Like, then you could never sell. Because what you're really saying is, I can't get anybody's attention unless I have a credit card paying for a meal or a round of golf or some kind of event that would buy me an audience with them. You know, I don't have anything of value to present or discuss or any kind of problem worth solving. I'm not someone worth talking to. I don't have anything worth talking about. But if I buy my time, I can get in front of customers and they like me enough and they're going to spend the money with someone. It's like, what are you saying? I mean, I learned really early in my sales career that you lose business the same way you win it. So if you win it because you bought that nice bottle of wine at dinner, just wait until your competitor buys another one. If you won it because you were the lowest price, just wait till someone beats you by a nickel. If you won it because of fill in the blank, that's how you're going to lose it. The motive of the customer's purchase or the motive behind the customer's purchase is going to dictate how they buy things in the future. Your way to overcome that, to build loyalty, to build value, to become a trusted advisor is to influence their motive to buy, not to just make a brilliant presentation. And that's why we talk about being problem-centric in our conversations and problem-centric in our prospecting and being provocative to make them think about things that they hadn't been thinking about before. And this gets into my rethink. Not only do you need to rethink the way you sell, you want to influence your customer, your prospect to rethink why they're trying to buy what they're buying. The best moment in the entire sales process is in discovery. When your prospect says something, they stop and they're like, I've never said that out loud before. I just realized this. They need to say that thing out loud that they've never said before. And more importantly, they need to hear themselves say that thing out loud. And then they sit back in their chair and they're like, wow, huh sometimes they'll smile sometimes they'll frown <laughs> but that's when you know you've made a significant impact you're not going to have that moment every time you're going to have it a lot more often than not but you should be striving for that moment and if you're not striving for that moment you are not building uh, a trusted advisory type of relationship. You are not doing true consultative selling and you are not going to win a lot of those deals. Your win rate 
is astronomical when that moment happens. So while yeah. you may not ever, well, you may not always get there. If you're not striving for that moment, you are hurting yourself and you're hurting your chances. Absolutely. Manish gave you a thumbs up. So he's in agreement. Uh, Carrie awesome. says, I love the energy of this conversation. Good morning, John Hill. Good to see you. And good morning, Donald Levine. And by the way, not only would uh, Todd be impressed by your use of the word heuristic, but if you could quote a sales expert from 1909, he'd be really impressed. That's an inside joke. You got to know Todd Capone for that one. Yes, it is. Um, yes, it is. Arthur Dunn. I'm just going to say Arthur Dunn. And, and Todd, Todd'll be, Todd'll be happy. If Todd is listening. He just got a big smile on his face. Um, you also say that part of the problem is that sales leaders don't hold their people accountable. What should a sales leader be? doing holding their people accountable jeff you just said it oh you want me to explain that oh okay well, no. a little <laughs> in what way making sure that you do what you need to do and i don't mean by micromanaging i mean by treating you as a customer by remembering that what you two decide is in the best interest of not only you not only them but interest of the best interest of the company making sure that they're checking up on you to, so that you're, you're doing the work, supporting you. And by checking up on you, again, I don't mean looking over your shoulder. People think accountability is a dirty word because they conflate it with micromanagement. But when you really break these terms down, micromanagement is the opposite of accountability. Micromanagement is, I don't trust you. Micromanagement is, I don't think you're going to do this unless I let you know that I'm going to make sure that you are going to do this. And I'm going to let you know that I'm looking at you and I want to see that the CRM is updated, that you made a billion phone calls, that you sent two billion emails, that you did all these things that I think you need to do. Micromanagement is overlooking the activity metrics of things. Accountability, on the other hand, on the other side of this spectrum is, hey, Jeff, we decided what we needed to do together and how we decided what we needed to do together was understanding what the best interest of everybody is was are you know however however my part of speech is is correct there my grammar teacher would not be help, uh, happy with me right now but we just decided what a win-win-win situation is it's a win for you it's a win for me win for the company and so it's in all of our best interest for you to do this it's my job to hold you accountable by making sure you have what you need, making sure you have the support that you need, making sure that I can help you to execute on your goals in any way that's possible. And you know, and, and as I step out of this kind of role play here, you know that you will never perform better than when you know someone is looking after you with your best interest in mind. Right. It's the reason we hire personal trainers at the gym. It's the reason that we hire coaches. It's the reason that, you know, we have accountability partners when we have some kind of goal that we want to set. It's not that someone's going to micromanage you. It's that, you know, OK, have I done everything I need to do to accomplish this? And if so and so were looking at me right now, if we were in a conversation right now, what would they ask and what would they be looking for? So when I feel supported, I'm going to go do my best work. When I don't feel like I have someone to answer to, even in a friendly colloquial way, which is you know a lot closer to the management style I'd like to see out of people, it, it, when you don't have that, yeah, you knock off a little early on a Thursday afternoon. You, you don't make the extra call. You don't do those things that you know are in your best interest, but they just require the discipline to do. And discipline will take you so far, accountability takes you 10 or 15% further. And that 10 or 15% further is the difference often between someone who crushes it all the time and someone who never quite lives up to their potential. 
So I really go out of my way to to uh, separate these these terms, right? Accountability and micromanagement. People conflate them as twins. Uh, they are not related. <laughs> if anything, they're distant cousins. It's it's a, a total lack of support and trust on one end, and an overwhelming amount of trust and support on the other end. And until you start looking at it that way, um, you're you're making a mistake. So yeah, yeah we, we need to have results oriented meetings once a week or once a month. Maybe a little more often than that if you sell something transactional. But if you're leading a B2B sales team, chances are once a month for 10 or 15 minutes, you need to sit down and you need to have a results-oriented conversation. What happened last month? What was the number? Was it where we wanted it to be? Was it short? Okay, do you have the pipeline to either make up for that deficit or continue your success? And I'll tell you what, if you have the results and you have the pipeline, we don't even need to talk about activity. And some of you may notice that this is something lifted directly from my friend Mike Weinberg's book, Sales Management Simplified. I have not ever seen a better uh, results-oriented template for a brief results-oriented meeting ever. And Mike's a friend of mine. I give him full credit for that. It's the best sales management book I've ever read. I think it's the best one it's ever written. It intimidates me to even, you know, uh, take on the topic because he's done so well, you know, to put this stuff together. But like that is just such a simple framework. And all it is is a regroup on a monthly basis to make sure that everybody knows what's really important. Yeah. And the results are more important than the activities that go into it. So by the book, he goes into way you know better detail uh, than I ever could. But um, from from that standpoint, the what I see between sales organizations that work and sales organizations that don't is leadership put in place to remember that not only are the results because this sales is a results oriented game not only are the results vitally important but the reps delivering the results need to feel supported and accountable they're not just out there doing their own thing and yeah. I, I think that is something that um i mean that opens an entire door and, and I mean, it opens Pandora's box in terms of, you know, how do you relate? I want to make sure you're doing what you need to do to be successful with, hey, go do it your own way, which is what I talk a lot about when it comes to, you know, I say you never sell better than when you sell like you. Well, I, I think it, it breaks down pretty simply to, to this kind of uh, format. You've got your sales process, which is the science of selling. We talk about selling being an art and a science. The sales process, that's what has to happen in order for a sale to be completed. That's up here. Okay, that's the science of selling. Underneath here, we've got your methods. Jeff, you're gonna sell differently than me. We're gonna sell differently than John, than Donald, than Mitch, than Bruce, than Munish, than Kerry. Everybody's gonna sell differently. It's the leader's job to make sure that the methods are accountable to the process. That's where this all fits. So the leader creates an environment for sellers to sell their best and all that has to be checked on a regular basis is, hey, Jeff, I don't care how you do it. You're going to use different words than me, but I want to make sure that what you're doing is leading to the results that we're looking for. And as long as we can square that, I want you to go be you. And so accountability comes a lot more. It comes into play with, you know, with regard to the results that we're trying to create. But it also is the job of the leader in creating a vulnerable environment where reps can feel free to fail so long as they are striving for success. And it's just that checkpoint that says, OK, great, I see what you're doing. How do you feel about doing it? Well, I feel good about the way I'm doing it. Okay, great. Is it going to lead to the results that you're looking for? Are we seeing progress toward that? Yes, I do. Okay, great. Because as long as the process is being implemented, as long as the process, the boxes along that process are being checked, we're in good shape. And, and that's, 
this accountability concept is just pervasive throughout an effective organization. It's not just about the the, the monthly fifteen minute meetings, although that's the linchpin of um, of this kind of uh, environment. I guess is the right word for that. Yeah, could not agree more. Um, I, I've been in sales for forty eight years, and much of that was as a sales manager, as an employee for corporations, and like you, I do outsource sales management. And I, I found that well, I, I came up at a time that when it was. I'm the boss, you're gonna do it my way because I tell you to. Yeah. And I, I think we've gone too far in the other direction where we're kind of letting reps do whatever they want. Uh, I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one sales coaching, which I love to do because you, you can really make a difference in people's lives and their incomes and you know their ability to take care of themselves and their family. And, um, I find that you, your customers are your best source of business intelligence. And the thing that most of my coaching clients tell me that they enjoy most about working with me is exactly what you said, it's the accountability. I have one guy, uh, he's highly successful. He's probably gonna make a half million dollars this year working for Aflac. He cold calls an hour every day. Not because I told him that's what he has to do, that's his commitment. I will yeah. cold call an hour every day to get appointments. And he decided that, can I can I text you at the end of every day and just let you know what I'm, good, what I'm doing? Every afternoon I get a text from her, or sometimes it's the next morning, I made my hours worth of calls, I got no appointments. I got one appointment, whatever it is. And yeah. All it is is a very quick thing, but he knows that I'm watching for it. Uh, I I pride myself in being a person of integrity. I consider after my three kids is the thing I value most in, in life, me being a man of my word. But even being a man of my word, being a fairly disciplined individual, I'll break a promise to myself, but I won't break one. I'd rather break my arm than break my word to you, but I might yeah. break it to myself. So having somebody else that I know is watching, which is difficult as a solopreneur, I think is essential. What, 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 when we talk about the average sales rep, what, what's the mindset of the average sales rep? Um, I hope they like me enough to buy something from me. <laughs> I think that's really it. And that's kind of a, I, I, we asked that question. I'm like, well, I, I could answer this in so many different ways. It's not one of belief. Certainly there's, there's so much doubt. Um, so much of selling is trying to, it's like you're trying to play a chess game and you're not very good at it. It's like, you're trying to play chess to get them. You're not playing to win. You're playing in such a way that you're trying to avoid them saying the thing that you don't want to hear. You, if I mean, I see you nodding and smiling. So I think, I, I don't know if I said that exactly correctly, but it's as I'm reviewing calls and I'm listening to, to reps talk and I'm listening to them sell. And it's like, wow, you are dancing all over this place. Just hoping they don't say you're too expensive. Right. And it's like, guys, if you just believed enough in your pro product, if you just believed enough in your service, your solution, if you believed so much in the problems that you solve, that they are worth solving and that they are actually worth solving in an expensive manner, if you believed that your solution was head and shoulders better than the others because it's differentiated in its approach and in the context and everything else, like it, it is amazing how much you can sell it for. I see reps talk themselves out spending their customers money for them oh they'll never buy this oh we're oh this is too much it's like okay and i think that's because we approach it from the wrong context from the wrong uh direction if you approach it as okay this is a piece of software 
it costs a little bit to develop, but it's infinitely scalable. So it's not like it takes up a lot of space or, or whatever. Like, is it really worth all that much? You know, here's this widget. Okay. We make them for 57 cents and, you know, we're profitable at 75 cents. I mean, why am I trying to sell it at $2 and 50 cents? Like we're, you know, isn't it worth like, and, and we have all these hangups and these ties around money. And I think this goes to, uh, to say why people have such hangups with salespeople. I don't think people have a problem with salespeople. I think people have a problem with money and it's easy to put it, it's easy to pin it on the sales guy or the saleswoman who's trying to take it from us, right? That is a warped view of what we do as a profession. Right. And so, you know, I wrote something a couple of months ago now, the 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 definition of a sales call. And a sales call is a productive conversation about a problem worth solving. When you think about it from that standpoint, it opens up a completely different world of possibilities. And when you dig into the problem that needs to be solved, when you dig into the roadblocks that this problem creates toward progress elsewhere in someone's life or in someone's business, and I've always sold, you know, business to business, I guess, you know, I do a little bit of individual coaching too. And, and so in that way, I guess it's B to C, but I mean, in the, in the grand scheme of things, consultative selling is what I would consider, you know, B to B selling to be. And when you help people understand the roadblocks that they're up against, when you help people understand the, the possibilities that are made available once these intermediate problems are solved, now all of a sudden you have a completely different scope of what becomes possible. And, you know, well, you just said a minute ago, I love individually coaching people because you see the night and day difference, the impact that it makes on these people's lives. Yeah, I'll, and I'll bet you sell it for like, you know, $50 an hour because, you know, 50 bucks an hour is, you know, you know what I mean? Like, come on, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. But most people would say, if you make $50 an hour, is that a lot? They say, oh, yeah, no, that's it. You make a pretty good living. And it's like, yeah, but you're underselling the value of what you do. And so, look, you sell your coaching for a lot more than $50 an hour. So do I. As a matter of fact, I don't have an hourly rate because you're leasing a portion of my brain and you don't want me to run up the bill on how often I'm actually thinking about your progress and the problems that I want to help you solve, right? It's unfair to everybody for us to sell that time by the hour because the impact is so much greater than that. And so if you start thinking about the solutions you can potentially create with your problem solving expertise, instead of I've got this widget that I need to sell for 250 and I really wish I could sell it for $1.75. Well, now you're going to your mindset changes, you're going to approach the sales call in a completely different way. So I would say the mindset of the average sales rep is warped. <laughs> I would say the mindset of the average sales rep is misguided. I would say that if you stop thinking in terms of what is this product I need to sell and what is, and you start thinking in terms of what is this problem I get to solve, uh, an entire new world opens up in front of you and you would be surprised at what you will learn. And when you stop trying to talk yourself out of your highest price, when you're already thinking of how much of a discount can I bring in here? Because, you know, this company's kind of in a bad way and they're just trying to get started and, and everything else. The thing about price, Jeff, and I know you know this, and I know I'm sure many of your viewers and, and listeners know this, the amount of value you get from a solution is directly, pretty directly tied to how much you spend on it. You yeah. tend to get what you pay for. 
You feel like you're going to get when you what you pay for when you decide to buy it. You make sure you get more than what you paid for if you're actually engaged in the process and in and in the the the, the, the process of you know solution building. Um, if you are under investing in your outcome, you're going to get a worse outcome. And and so there's actually power. You actually owe it to your customer in this way. You can quote me on this. I'm happy. You can quote me on this. You owe it to your customer to charge as much as you can. Uh, you see me smiling and nodding again, because once again, I'm in perfect agreement with you. First of all, uh, salespeople just don't want to hear no. I love no. I like yes better, but I understand that no is part of the game. And I want to get to the yes or the no as quickly as I possibly can. So I can go talk to somebody else who may say yes or no. I think if yes is here, no is right here and everything else sucks. I want to think it over. I got to talk to my partner, uh, the times, whatever it is, that hurts me. I don't, I don't, I make it very, very easy for people to say yes to me and just as easy for them to say no. And I'm not here to argue with people. I'm not saying that when somebody says no, I don't, I just walk away. I still want to have a conversation about why it's no, but if it's really no, I think the smartest thing you can do is say, I'm glad we can invest this time together. If you ever change your mind, I'd love to work with you. Who do you know that I should be speaking with? And then leave skid marks in somebody's driveway, getting out of there so you can go talk to somebody else. So I love no. And the other thing that you talked about is value. $50 an hour for $50 an hour. I'm just going to sit on the beach and drink tequila and, and look at the ocean. I, I, I'm not ashamed. I charge 10 times that for an hour of my time. You and I think I'm actually undercharging. I provide exceptional value for that. And I am never, ever, ever worried about what's in my prospect's pocket. That's not my job. My job is to create a relationship with them where they have some trust in me and maybe like me a little bit, but they see the value that they're going to get for the investment they're making on themselves. It, it, that's our job. How do we create that relationship and how do we express the value in a way that the prospect goes, oh, that's not cheap, but you know what? I need to do this because this is an investment that's going to pay off big time. And if I'm not delivering on that investment, shame on me. Shame on you for mistakenly being bamboozled by me and shame on me for not really delivering. So I'm with you a million percent. If it doesn't sting a little bit, you don't have their, you don't have their attention. And the attention is bigger. The attention is the problem. You know, I remember having this conversation when I first started my business. I remember having this conversation with my financial advisor and we were talking about pricing. And I said, you know, you deal with people all along the spectrum. You've got high net worth individuals. You've got people just starting out. You know, we're both of a similar age. And when we both got together, we were both just kind of starting. Yeah, I, he was trying to build. I didn't have much, but, you know, he provided me with some expertise and he's like an extended family member now. And I just remember asking him, I said, how do you do that? I mean, do you charge everybody? How do you price? He's like, oh, I don't have a static price. He's like, if I'm providing a financial plan for someone and he said, let's just say I charged $500 for an assessment, right? And I have this family that I'm trying to help and they're looking between couch cushions and they're going to friends and they're, you know, walking in the parking lot with their head down just in case there's a $5 bill laying there that they can pick up, whatever. He's like, that family at $500, I have their full attention. He's like, if I take that same assessment, do everything identically, it's the same process, the same amount of time, but I take that $500 assessment to someone who's worth $50 million, that, that I don't even have their attention. He's like, I have to charge something different for the same work because I need to make sure that they're going to get the solution out of what I'm trying to do for them. Yeah. And that yeah. made me think differently you know, it's made me think differently for the last, you know, eight years now since I started this business. And and so price is a lever. 
price is something that gets people as people's attention price is something that helps you build the productive tension that you need to create to get them to make the decision that is going to help them i'm not talking about manipulating anybody i'm not talking about coming up with some astronomical unbelievable price that is laughable but what i mean is there is a reason why your product is priced the way it's priced there's a reason if you work for somebody else, you probably didn't set the price. There's a reason that solution is priced where it is. If you don't believe in that reason, you're selling the wrong thing. Go sell something else. Absolutely. And once you believe in that reason, once you yourself are sold on the value of that product or solution, now go out there and instill value in other people. Yeah, that's absolutely. your job. Jeff, my coach charges 50% more than I do. And you know what? I'm thrilled to pay it. Why? She provides exceptional value. She's not a sales coach. She's a transfer. She helps you be the best version of you. Yeah. And she provides magnificent results. I mean, she she's amazing. If she, if she said tomorrow, I'm raising my prices again, like, okay, whatever it is, because I get great value out of it. And it, that's really what it boils down to. When you provide enough value, price becomes unimportant. And I'm not saying that there are not people that will cut you off the, at the knees for a nickel, because there are some, but it's sure not most. It's it's why most of us are not driving a 1975 Honda Accord. You can buy one for 500 bucks, and they run forever. They're great cars. Still running but, you. <laughs> sorry. They're probably still running too. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're great cars. I had a Honda Accord at one point. They're terrific. Yeah. They're not sexy, but they're great cars, and they run forever yeah. if you take care of them. But yeah. there's a reason why people buy, you know, ninety-five thousand dollar Mercedes or whatever it is people drive. It's because they see the value in ninety-five thousand dollars more value in owning a new Mercedes than a 1975 Honda Accord. Yeah. That's that's our job. How do we get the prospect to understand the value? And that's when you don't hear, oh, I can't afford it. Actually, you might hear I can't afford it, but you're not going to hear that your price is too high, which are two very different objections. Yeah. When it's you good. hear the price is too high, you screwed up, salesperson. Right. That's it, not it, the prospect. That's you. When they say I can't afford it, that's another story. And I understand. I've talked to many people who say, I'd love to do that, Jeff. I don't have the money. And of course, my answer is that's exactly why you need me. But OK. Right. It, it's not always practical. Right. It, it's um, nobody needs to nobody buys a Rolex because they need to know what time it is. Nobody <laughs> buys a Mercedes because they need a ride to work. You, you know, there's there are other experiential kind of things there are um ego driven you know status driven uh decisions to be made and that's and not a commentary on that i think it's important you know but you need to understand again it's the motive to buy if you need to know what time it is i'll tell you what for 15 bucks you can go buy a knockoff not even a timex you can buy a knockoff timex iron man you know uh watch for 15 bucks they'll tell you what time it is it's digital you'll change the battery every five years and you will know what time it is chances are you have a phone that'll tell you what time it is don't even and you don't even need to wear a watch so it's like but yet people buy these 20 30 50 150 thousand dollar time pieces and then they'll say it's because it's an investment. Yeah, if it's an investment, then it'd be locked up in a safe somewhere. You're wearing it because it says something about who you want to be perceived as, right? Yeah. So there are always motives to buy that are more or beyond the simple dollars and cents equation of if I bring this in, then I, you know, if I spend this much, then I bring this in. And the concept I've been working on recently is of this equation, right? It's X is the value of solving the problem. Y is the value of 
or is is the perceived value of your means of solving the problem, right? So you have to get your you have to get your prospect bought in on a couple of things. One that the problem is worth solving. Okay, so we'll call that X. The other way is they have to be in love with the way you want to go and solve it because it's differentiated, because it provides different perspective, because it, because it approaches it from a different angle, because it uses different resources, whatever it is. But when X, X plus Y needs to be greater than the price you're asking for. That's all. And when X and Y are big enough, it doesn't matter how much money you ask for. Agreed. And it's not for everybody. Jeff, I, I, we have a question from one of the listeners. And oh. I, came, I came up with about 75 questions for you. And I think we've gotten to three. So I'd like to fire some at you and get some quick answers here. But John Hill, who is a trade show coach, says, what is your response when you're at a trade show selling a product and somebody comes up and asks you, how much? Who's asking? <laughs> I, would vo I would volley that back. And I would use some kind of humor to uh, discuss the situation. And and then what I would really, and then if they pressed, I'd say, John, you're asking me how much I, I really don't know what to tell you because you're not going to be able to, I don't have the context to understand. Now, what I sell is highly customized and I can tell you that for a certain amount, you're going to have access to my online platform for your entire team. But until I know how much, uh, you know, how, how big your team is, what you're trying to solve, et cetera, um, I'm probably not going to tell you much because what it means, well, what it means to me doesn't mean anything to you at this point. So I would say who's asking and why are you asking? Bingo. Right. That, that, that and, was my thought exactly. You know, when yeah. somebody says how much at a trade show, I'd say, I'm just curious. Why do you ask? There's some reason why they want to know how much it's not. It, they might just be just curious, but they probably have some interest. So and then it's time to ask questions. Let's delve in and find find out why they want to know. And I'd be happy to say I'd, I'd be happy to give you the number. Let's 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 delve a little deeper, though. You know what what find that problem that they have, or what your whatever solution your provided product or service is going to provide, and build that value first. The one advice I would certainly give is never just throw out a price. Never, never, never throw answer that question with it's seventy five dollars or it's two million dollars because there's something behind that. And if if you're just giving the price, that's all people have to go on. Oh, it's too expensive. It's not too expensive compared to something else. I mean, if you're feeling frisky. Go ahead, throw a number out there. See what happens. Like, what what kind of mood are you in? How how much do you want to play around with this person? You know, what is their whole uh, vibe when they walk up? Are they walking up, John? As I'm imagining you walking up with a smile on your face, saying, "Okay, how much?" Knowing that that's a ridiculous question to ask me without providing any context, I'll play with that. I'll banter with that all day. And, and I, I go to this. You know, you go to the department store, you know, the change of season, maybe it's the fall, we're getting toward the holidays and, yeah, you know, you, you see all the beautiful sweaters all laid out and you just want to touch them because touching them is more fun than just looking at them, right? And you want to flip them over that price tag. You want to see how much it is. And <coughs> if it was the right cost, if it was the right price, you'd buy it. So there is some motive there to buy. You wouldn't ask if you weren't interested. Hey, maybe I'm just doing research. Okay, well, then I'll give you a range. Hey, maybe I have a sales team that I want to train. Okay, great. What do you sell? And how many people are you talking about here? And maybe I can give you a range. You know, there's, there are all these things where I'm happy to use price as a lever. I already talked about this. I'm happy to use price as a lever. And I'm also willing to be a smart ass and say, more than you can afford. Or I'm willing to say, <laughs> If you got to ask, then you probably can't afford it, right? Or something like that. Again, depends on how frisky I'm feeling. If you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. So let me just let me just say that. Yeah. But 
there is a point in time where even the tire kickers would buy if the price was right, which suggests that there is some level of motive there. And until you uncover that motive, until you understand the value of them even approaching a solution to their perceived problem, it really doesn't make sense to tell them how much. Yeah, I, so I, I, I use that the, as a playground. I've used the range thing many times, especially when I'll get a call like, hey, I work for so-and-so. She's the VP of sales here, and uh, she asked me to find out what you charge. And my answer is always, look, I've done programs for $500 and I've done programs for $225,000. I know that doesn't really help you very much, but I think right. the smart thing to do is let's set up a meeting for you, me, and your VP of sales so we can discuss what you really need. And then I'd be happy to give you an exact number. Does that make sense to you? Because yeah. I'm, I'm definitely, I don't know what the price is going to be until I know what you need. And if, and it's not about, let me figure out how much the problem is worth so I can soak you for it. Right. And that's the thing where, where some prospects are going to, they, they want to own the leverage. They want to feel like they have some leverage. And I think when someone says how much without any context, it's a little bit of a power play. So what you need to do is indulge that power play, because if you overcome it, there's 12 other people in this exhibit hall who will give me a price. You just ruled yourself out. So if you don't want to play that way, maybe you're okay walking away from that opportunity. That's fine. So what you have to do is ask for context without eliminating their feeling of leverage in the conversation. And I think that's an underestimated, underrated aspect of this. When someone just comes up with no context, it's a power play. So let them feel like they have leverage and say, look, I can appreciate that. And I can throw you a range. I just don't know if that's actually going to answer your question or if you're going to throw, if I'm just throwing you a range. So if, if you're serious about a problem that needs to be solved, I'm happy to hear a little bit more about the situation. And I'm happy to talk to whoever you feel is best equipped to give me the details and the context for that situation. And I'll shoot you straight. I'll give you a much tighter range. It's going to be much more accurate. That will get even more accurate the more information you give me. Yep. So I, I, I respect what you're doing. I, I think, I mean, Hey, thanks for including me in your research. I want to be fair to you. I don't know how I can do that right now. And I, lo I love that. I want to be fair to you. That's great. Cause you, you're, you're saying, I want to take great care of you. Jeff, I want to switch uh, directions for a second because we've been talking sure. a little bit about selling and about managing. I'd like to talk about the thing that I find is the usually the biggest challenge for most salespeople, they're simply not speaking to enough prospects. They just aren't. So how do we prospect like a pro? <laughs> Start by being someone worth talking to and having something worth talking about. That's first. Um, the next thing, yeah, well, I'm, let me go into that a little bit. If you don't have credibility or relevance, why would anybody pick up your call? Why would anybody return your email? If you're just some nobody who picks up the phone, uh, you know, spews some sort of elevator pitch at them, doesn't create any context around their problem, like you're, you're not likely to get a desirable response. So the first thing is have something worth talking about and uh, be someone worth talking to. Second thing is, um, reach out way more often than you think you should, or, or way more often than you probably are. And this gets back to, you know, Mitch's question earlier, but rethink the way you sell. Um, the default, Jeff, I'm sure you've seen this, the default length of time between calls for salespeople is two weeks. I don't know what manual that was in, but it seems everybody I talked to is like, yeah, I just left them a message. I'm gonna call them back in a couple of weeks. As if that voicemail is like sitting in their inbox, just waiting for them to digest it and think about for the next couple of weeks. And oh yeah, once they've considered, really considered my proposition, then they'll come back to me and call. No, you're abdicating your role. You are basically avoiding all responsibility. The best practices out there 
show that you need to call a lot more often than you do. And two weeks is not nearly often enough. I recommend that people call a little bit more than once a week because that's often enough to maintain your top of mind status. It's often enough to build a little bit of momentum between calls. You don't lose that momentum like you do when you've done, you know, um, every two weeks. If, if you call 10 times every two weeks, you've not made 10 calls. You've made the same call 10 times and that doesn't help you. Okay. Yeah. Throw that over the fact that most people only reach out three times before they give up. And the published best practices data out there suggests that it's at least nine times before someone will actually respond to you. So when you realize that 92% of people give up after three attempts and 60% of the sales are made after the eighth or ninth attempt, what you realize is that 8% of the salespeople out there are making the majority of the sales and that tracks. So I kind of put this all together in a Venn diagram and I say that, you know, you need to reach out five times over four weeks. That's every four business days. That's enough to maintain top of mind, not enough to be an overwhelming pest. Oh, by the way, being an overwhelming pest has way less to do with the frequency of your call and way more to do with the value within each one of those calls. That's what I mean by being someone worth talking to and having something worth talking about. But we know we need to reach out longer. We know we need to reach out more uh, often. We know we need to reach out with more value. And we know we need to be more credible and more relevant than we are. And so when you start thinking in terms of all of those, what is the picture that you paint? It looks like what professional prospecting looks like. And it means having problem-centric conversations that lead to solutions-oriented conversations that ultimately lead to sales. Yep, the sales um, arbiter says, Jeff is right. Most people don't want to do the work it takes to be successful. Let's end mediocrity. I, and I'm sure you know that our friend Todd Capone uh, is in complete agreement with almost all sales messaging seems to be about I. I want to do this. I know that. I know the other thing. And I, I know he said it before. You got to get rid of the word I as much as possible. The, the prospect doesn't care about you. They care about themselves. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with Jason Bay. Uh, really, you know, Jason? Jason's a very good one of my best friends. Um, Jason guy. and Todd and I have uh, actually combined on deals together with a, with a client of mine. And we just we, you never have more fun than when you get to do something like this with your friends. But when I talk about this being persistent versus being a pest, um, I'm going to plug this. It's on Jason's YouTube channel. We did it a couple of years ago, but we did a webinar on being a persistent, being persistent versus being a pest. And there's 58 minutes of gold there. Um, you know, if you want to go back and find it. Um, and I want to just give a quick shout out to Crispin Cruz, the sales arbiter. Um, there's another guy who really knows his stuff. Uh, got a great podcast and a, and a great weekly uh, live stream show too on, on this that doesn't compete at the in a time slot with you. Chris please, is a good guy to get on. You please, know, please, uh, please introduce show. me. Yes, I'd appreciate mm -hmm. that. Uh, but I, I was mentioning Jason because I'm a big fan. I've had him oh, on a great. couple of times. His company is Blissful Prospecting. If you want to go to blissfulprospecting.com, lots of free great information on there. And he's well worth following. But you know, he talks about great messaging and uh, it, for, for somebody like you or me, it might be, you know, I'm talking to a lot of VPs of sales who are saying their sales cycle is too long. You know, instead of I help people close more business, it's like you're talking about their problem. That, that's what they want to hear about. So uh, and any other tips? Oh, actually, before I get to that, um, yeah. you say that you're more likely to respond to a cold call than an email. Why is that? Because nobody calls. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Do what the other guy isn't. Well, I, I mean, okay, my inbox is flooded. 
And with all the information out there and all of the people out there who are using automation and software and all these things to scale their work for them without doing the work to be credible and relevant and valuable and all these other things, look at my inbox. It's really easy for me to triage and say, not worth it, not worth it, not worth it, not worth it. But if someone calls me, that sticks out to me. If they actually leave me a voicemail message that is credible, that sounds like they put a little bit of effort into it. And I don't mean doing the amount of homework that you did to go back through most of my content and find these questions to ask and things like that. I mean, like, hey, look, I'm talking to VPs of sales like you who are struggling with their sales cycles being too long. I've got some insights to share with you. And look, even if we don't move forward and work on a project together, my call is going to be worth taking because we're going to be able to talk about your problem in the context or, or through the context of some different solutions for you. Is it worth 15 minutes to chat? How do you say no to that if you have that problem? Maybe he didn't call at the right time or she didn't call at the right time. So it just doesn't make sense for you to call back now. But if you called me four or five more times, left detailed messages, brief but detailed, relevant messages that show me you're not going to be waited out, that show me you're going to continue to persist because you really believe that you can help me. And maybe that's combined with a social touch on LinkedIn and maybe a couple of emails to say, hey, you may recognize my name because I've left you some really compelling voicemails. You know, all of these things that all add up, you show me you've got me professionally surrounded, you're coming to me with value, a differentiated point of view, and you, you, know, you won't be waited out. Like that's professional selling. And yeah. now I know I'm dealing with a professional and not some hack who I know is going away after two more emails and, you know, timing isn't perfect right now. So I put it up on the salesperson. I'm like, look, if you were really serious, you'd persist. And you're, you're showing me that you care about me, not everybody. The call I hate to get is, hey, Jeff, we're calling businesses in your area like yours. Really? That You're just calling every business? Right. I, I, what I often ask him is, what do I do? Right. Tell me what I do for a living. Yeah. If you can't answer that, I don't want to listen to what you've got to say. Right. I, I just don't have time for it. Uh, we're, and we're quickly running out of time, and I really do have probably 60 more questions. Uh, <laughs> I want to ask you, because we're all hearing about AI these days. Yeah. Uh, everybody's worried jobs are going to disappear, and while I certainly don't believe sales is going away anytime soon, no. uh, do you think sales is in jeopardy? And if not, how can salespeople make the best use of AI? How can people make the best sales? I mean, how can salespeople make the best use of AI? Is recognize that it's a tool that will help you automate redundant, repetitive tasks that will free you up to do more important work. Um, and I'm not just talking about using software and, and other programs and, and things like that. I mean, I mean, it can aggregate research for you. It, it can do a lot of these things. Um, I think the important thing to do to think about is whether or not your entire job consists of redundant, repetitive, mindless kind of tasks, because that's really not selling. Selling is making sure that your head is where your feet are. Selling is making sure that you are in the moment. Selling is making sure that you are connecting live with people. And you know what, what AI will never be able to do is recreate the energy between two individuals and the best, uh, the best, analogy I have for that is when we were locked down we couldn't meet with individuals in person for a while, we could still meet with them like this. And we have the same conversations. We could read the same body language. We could even arrange for meals to be delivered. So we were eating food from the same, you know, franchise, whatever it was. But the thing that was missing that nuance of just the energy of being with somebody, we lost that over video. AI will never have that. So there's always this transmutation of that kind of energy. Yep. 
Jeff, so, uh, somebody's asking, uh, where, where, yeah. where can they see the persistence video? It's on Jason Bay's uh, uh, YouTube channel. Just go, just Google Google um, Google Jason Bay Jeff Bajoric persistent versus pest and it'll be the first thing that pops up. Yeah, maybe uh, um, but, if, but if you it, would maybe go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, maybe uh, if you'll go into the Sales Pro Network and uh, post that in the feed, that would be great. The link to that, or or if you want to send it to me, I'll post it for for them. Great. Um, I'm not on Facebook, so I. I I can't. I would love to join your group, but I'm not on Facebook. Um, I'm an old guy, so I am. And we're not the same age, Jeff. I promise you that. <laughs> I, I got off, what, seven, eight years ago or something, and I never looked back. Um, uh, well, the Sales Pro Network was formed on Facebook. It's a Facebook group with about 1,200 plus salespeople. Jeff, yeah, what, what's no, the difference no. between COI and ROI? So the cost of inaction versus return on investment. Um the cost of an action is basically the business case and the tension you're building around the business case for solving the problem that they have. Return on investment is basically, okay, this is what the investment looks like in terms of resources. That's time, it's energy, it's effort, it's money. And this is how you can uh, expect to see some kind of positivity there. Um, the COI is largely emotional. The ROI is largely logical. And so what people get wrong, what sellers get wrong is they try to use their logical ROI to create emotional tension around the cost of inaction. That doesn't work. So when you try to logic someone into purchasing something, you end up getting no decision because there's no context for why uh, they should solve this problem. If you create all kinds of tension and you don't have any ROI, you end up giving people reason to be indecisive because they don't have a logical resolution to this problem they've created in their heads. And so you have to have both COI and ROI, but if you put them in the wrong order, uh, it, it doesn't work. So stop talking about how value-driven your pricing is and start thinking about the value of solving the problem and have that customer have that moment, you know, create the situation where your customer has that moment where they think out loud, wow, I never thought about it that way. I've never heard myself say that before. Okay, I get it. This is a problem we have to solve because it's impeding this and it will lead to this. And the, the implications of this are far reaching. Okay, now all of a sudden we've painted this huge picture about the value of solving this problem. And now even though it's list price for you, it's only this much. It's a drop in the bucket in terms of the cost. And so we've got the emotion in this big cloud over here. And now the ROI is a very tangible, logical progression for how to relieve the tension or release the tension that's been created. So, hey, you've got a problem. There are far reaching implications. This is what we need to do to help get you out of here. Let me show you a path to this that makes clean sense. Got it, perfect. Um, I was reading one of your uh, posts on LinkedIn and uh, just er earlier this week, I was working with a coaching client. One of the things I'll do with them, obviously I have one-on-one -on -one sessions on Zoom with them, but I also sometimes listen to their recorded calls or they'll record a sales meeting on Zoom and uh, I'll watch that and then that, that helps me with the next session. And um, I'm not gonna mention his name just in case he's listening, I don't wanna embarrass him, but uh, in, his, in this video that I was watching of him talking to a prospect, he said, uh, look, I'm not trying to sell you anything here. I wasn't too thrilled with that. What's your take on when somebody says, I'm not trying to sell you anything? When you're on a sales call, why would you ever want to say that? I don't know. <laughs> and I just, it's this apologetic behavior for doing something that you should inherently be proud of. If a sales call is a productive conversation about a problem we're solving, why are you ever sorry for that? And I want you to think about what your prospect feels when you say you're not trying to sell them anything. How does that help you sell them something? Well, you lied to them. 
it's it's yeah, you, it's a bait and switch. Um, and I know you don't mean it to be that way. So all you when you say that, all you do is give away leverage. I'm not trying to sell you anything. Okay, well, then why are we talking? Well, no, I mean, I actually want to sell sell you something, but we'll we'll get there. Oh, so you're lying to me. Well, no, but I, think about that. Like, just just don't say it. Just don't say it. You've lost all accountability. And when think about saying, what not- happens. Think about what happens in order to paint yourself into that corner and do your best not to paint yourself into that corner, right? You don't apologize to be in sales. It's one of the most honorable professions you can ever embark on. Uh, know that you create value for people in ways that other people can't and stand in that value uh, because you're worth it. Yeah, much like the fact that my last name is Goldberg and I'm a Jew, I'm, I'm actually not, I, I, I'm anti-religion, but I'm not ashamed to be a Jew and I'm definitely not ashamed to be a salesperson. You know, we provide an incredibly valuable service. There's an old saying, you know, you, you build a better mousetrap, the, the world will be the path to your door. No, you build a better mousetrap and you find somebody to sell it for you. That's how you're going to make some money. Exactly. Uh, wow, we're, exactly. So, we're so getting close to the end here. I've got really, yeah. literally 30 more questions. Um, well, let's just do another, know. let's just do another one sometime. Well, you can book me for 2025 because that's what your calendar will allow right now. <laughs> I think we're booked up through the end of November, but yes, we'll definitely get you back. Maybe we'll get you on that episode with Todd and SD Bookbinder. You, your podcast is, I believe it's called Rethink the Way You Sell, yes? That's correct. Perfect. A few weeks ago, you offered a bonus episode and you said that top sellers all have one thing in common. What's that one thing? Top sellers all have one thing. In when I got to let you go after this. You do. Um, Cause I've got a meeting I have to run to, but I'm trying to think what I said. So the bonus episode, Oh, you know, they've all made a decision at some point in their career to sell in a way that only they can do. And, and that sell in a way that only they can sell. They have battled those inner demons of, I don't know if I should pay attention to that voice inside of my head, that feeling in my belly. Um, no, that's exactly what you have to do. You'll never sell better than when you sell like you. And until you make that decision, and the more you try to copy the other stuff that you've seen out there, the more you are reducing yourself to the level of mediocrity. And you didn't come here to be mediocre. You came here to do your very best work. You don't listen to shows like this. You don't watch shows like this. You don't sign up for Facebook groups like the Sales Pro Network work unless you are trying to do your best work you need to release yourself from that trap of mediocrity and uh at some point you just have to trust yourself great jeff before you go i want people to know how to reach you i'm sharing my screen but this is also a podcast for people who are going to be listening what's the best way to get in touch with you if somebody wants to talk to you if you're listening to this on a podcast player right now, look me up. Uh, the, you just search Jeff Bajoric. My show comes up. Rethink the way you sell. Um, RethinktheWayYouSell.com is where my uh, online community is for all my content. Uh, the podcast is there and it's available as a course. Um, JeffBajoric.com is obviously my home base on the internet. And at Jeff Bajoric is basically my handle for every social media platform. Jeff, feel free to run. Thank you so much for your time. We will definitely get you back on here again. And I am going to end now and I'll say this as I always do. Sales is a game of making things happen. So get out there and make sales happen. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend. Appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks.